When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. If you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get ad-free versions of every episode of the podcast. We're currently working on a bonus episode about what we watched during our month-long hiatus. You can find it all at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash next picture show. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Keith Phipps, Genevieve Kosky, and Tasha Robinson. This week, our gin is your tonic. We have two visually dazzling fantasies inspired by Arabian Nights, where genies offering three wishes are merely the tip of the magical iceberg. But before we get into this week's pairing, I'd like to use my power as a podcast host to grant one cinematic wish to all of us. If you could ask a genie to do something movie-related for you, what would it be? Genevieve Kosky. Well, my wish would be to see uh, something that I've uh, seen happening in video games translate over to movies, and that would be a spider warning for those of us (laughs) with arachnophobia. I really could have used that for this week's pairing in particular. Keith, what about you? Okay, so I kind of, when when this came up, I, I find myself going through the stages that one goes through when, when one gets a wish, which is like, oh, I know exactly what I want. It's like, well, wait a minute, can I go bigger than that? So the big one is like, restore all the lost films, right? Uh, you know, all the silent films that are no longer around or whatever. But my first thought was, I want to see Orson Welles' cut of The Magnificent Amberson. So that's my, mm-hmm. that's my movie wish. And I, I have a hard time seeing how that's going to have like a monkey's paw, like, uh, um, you know, uh, <laughs> side effect. Tasha, what about you? Oh, man, I, I kind of went to the same place of, you know, well, here's the obvious wish. But um, I mean, I think that there are a lot of things that a cinephile could hope for in terms of, you know, on a really small scale, I would like Chicago to bring back their downtown uh, summer movie series where you had uh, like, 8,000 people just like sitting in a field together watching the same movie. That was big fun. Or I like that you're going to bring back all the the lost movies because that was kind of on the list. I would also say make all of those movies like freely available streaming online because there's just so much stuff that's been lost. But I, I think ultimately, if I had to, to pin it down, it would be a pretty selfish wish, which would be, you know, like a little private movie screening room where when you go inside it, time in the outside world uh, stops for you. Because for me, you know, the the big problem with watching movies is time. There's just there's never enough time and there's so much I want to see short of just giving me a a whole bunch of extra time or, you know, giving me some kind of monkey's paw immortality that would have me outliving my friends in a very depressing uh, A.S. by it kind of way. (laughs) I'd say just like a place where I can go, you know, when we enter a movie theater, time stops for all of us. But I want that. I want that to be literal. Tasha, wow. but you know what's going to happen when you go in that room, right? Your glasses are going to break and you're not oh, going to no. be able to watch <laughs> Fortunately, I have like literal boxes oh, right. of contact we, we lenses thought about, and thought they about very, the, the, very rarely fall on the floor and drop. We haven't thought about the potential backfiring <laughs> wishes, uh, which is that uh, every other Orson Welles film gets uh, destroyed, all the, all the negatives. <laughs> not the man who can see tomorrow. My fairly violent fantasy is is to is to have all of the digital projectors ripped out of all of every projector, oh, Scott. <laughs> and then and then and then and then destroyed in an environmentally sound and safe way. That would be nice, but but I think I think I would just rather kind of turn back the clock to the moment where everything was still screened in thirty five millimeter and the Blu Ray was kind of the the right format. Like that's the sweet spot there. Film in theaters, people watching stuff on Blu Ray. 
just not laser just hold discs. It there. Not laser discs. Those aren't good. I know. What about four K Blu-ray? Oh, uh, sure, sure. But I mean, like again, I'm talking about going back in time. Please, Keith. I'm talking about going back in time here. Not, not nothing, nothing fanciful like four K <laughs> Blu-rays weren't weren't around at that moment. God. Anyway, uh, I like that all of us have additive fantasies that that bring new and exciting and wonderful things into the world. Except Scott, who's just like <laughs> destroy everything I don't like. Yeah, I think that would make it. Yeah, I'm sure there's some sort of genie backfiring thing. Well. We can wish uh, for what we want movies to be, but on this show, we have to contend with what movies actually are. What have we got this week, Tasha? The new George Miller fantasy, 3,000 Years of Longing, takes place largely in a hotel room in Istanbul, where an academic who specializes in storytelling enters into a conversation with a djinn that emerged from a bottle she acquired in a bazaar. The stories the djinn tells her about his millennia of adventures are rooted in the Middle Eastern folktales often referred to in English as Arabian Nights. This gave us the opportunity to look back on one of the most technically ambitious fantasy films ever made, producer Alexander Korda's 1940 spectacle, The Thief of Baghdad. Released a year after The Wizard of Oz, the film used breakthroughs in technicolor and special effects to bring candy-colored palaces, magic carpets, and, sorry Genevieve, giant spiders to life, influencing modern blockbusters from Raiders of the Lost Ark to Disney's Aladdin. So on this episode, we'll talk about The Thief of Baghdad and how it raised the standard for cinematic fantasy. Next week, we'll bring in 3,000 Years of Longing, which tries to infuse the genre with adult themes on life and love. Please stay with us. with us on a ship of adventure to meet the thief of Baghdad in that ancient land of mystery, romance, thrills, and excitement. Baghdad, city of magic. Baghdad, where breathtaking miracles leap before your eyes. was a rich and powerful king in Baghdad, and there was a lovable little thief. <laughs> the darkness falls. Leave your palace, go among your people, mix with the crowds. Then fate threw together the powerful king and the little thief on the road to strange adventures. I often think about what it must have been like to be a child going to the movies in the late 30s and early 40s. To see the first full-length animated feature, Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, followed by Pinocchio and Fantasia a couple years later. To see the sepia-toned Kansas turned into a full-color dreamscape in The Wizard of Oz. And then to be treated to the wall-to-wall spectacle of 1940's The Thief of Baghdad, an adventure that doubles as a dazzling demonstration of what the still-young medium could do. This was a time when movies were rapidly developing. Only two years after Warner Brothers popularized the new three-strip Technicolor process with the classic swashbuckler, The Adventures of Robin Hood. The dream that George Millies once had when he ran a capsule into the moon's eye in 1902's A Trip to the Moon was being realized as quickly and thrillingly as ever before. The impossible was becoming possible. 82 years later, The Thief of Baghdad still has that enchanting power, even as special effects have grown infinitely more sophisticated over the intervening decades. At the time, producer Alexander Korda seemed to recognize the need to strike while the iron was hot. The Thief of Baghdad had been made into a hit before in 1924 as a silent vehicle for Douglas Fairbanks, who considered it his favorite of his films. From the bones of that project, Quarter recognized the potential of applying new advances in technologies and techniques to the classic folktales of Arabian Nights, staging fantasy adventure on a scale that audiences had never experienced before. Though Quarter had produced or directed many classics in Britain, including Things to Come, The Private Life of Henry VIII, and The Four Feathers, which was kind of a warm-up for The Thief of Baghdad, the stakes were high for this film, and the production was tumultuous. Korda burned through several directors, including the great Michael Powell, and patched together the film despite running out of money and having the outbreak of World War II suspend filming until it could be resumed in the United States. But little of that behind-the-scenes drama is evident in the finished product, which is a testament to Korda's persistence of vision, and of the outsized roles producers like him and David O. Selznick could have in a movie. Given the many hands involved in making The Thief of Baghdad, it probably helped to have a story that breaks up so well into smaller stories, held together by the unlikely friendship between an exiled sultan and a joyful young thief. 
Though the conspicuously British actor John Justin is the ostensible hero of the film as Ahmad, a blind beggar who was once the ineffectual ruler of Baghdad, the film belongs to two performers who make much deeper impressions. Conrad Veet as the evil advisor Jaffer, who uses his sinister magic to seize power throughout the kingdom and beyond, and Sabu as Abu, a thief who is the son of Abu the thief and the grandson of Abu the thief. Before Ahmed was a blind beggar on the streets of Basra, he was the highly suggestible young sultan of Baghdad, acting as a puppet for his sinister advisor, Jaffer, who has turned it into a miserable and unjust city. When Ahmed finally discovers the truth by disguising himself as a commoner, Jaffer arrests him and seizes the throne. That's when he meets Abu, who's thrown into the same prison for thievery, but seems unfazed by it. The two escape and flee to Basra, where Ahmed becomes obsessed with a beautiful princess whose sultan father is known for his prized collection of toys. Jaffer arranges to marry the princess in exchange for a mechanical horse, but at this point, the princess and Ahmed are in love. So Jaffer blinds Ahmed and turns Abu into a dog. And that's only the beginning of a grand adventure that's full of wishes and curses and other supernatural events, including a hot-tempered genie in a bottle, a giant spider, an all-seeing eye, and a magic carpet ride. The Thief of Baghdad is full of stunts and gorgeous matte paintings and experiments in visual effects like rear projection and blue screen. But the casting of Veet and Sabu are perhaps the most important effects of all. With his unshakable confidence, loyalty, positivity, and rascally sense of humor, Sabu is an especially winning screen presence with a childlike spirit that sets the tone for the whole film. So what would it have been like to see The Thief of Baghdad as a 10-year-old? Who knows? We can only watch it now as grown-ups 82 years later. Does it still have the same power to enchant? We'll talk about it after the break. ago, King Solomon, master of all the jinn, imprisoned me within that bottle. <laughs> for me, this is the first moment of my new freedom. For you, <laughs> for you, this is the last moment of your life. My life? Your life. In a moment, I shall lift my foot and crush you. Insect, beetle, worm that you are. But Chief of Spades, I wish you out of the sea. I opened your bottle, I let you out. You can't be so ungrateful. Ungrateful? Slaves are not grateful. Not for their freedom. <laughs> so I'm curious, uh, how does it feel to watch The Thief of Baghdad as a grown-up? 82 years later, and not as a 10-year-old in the year 1940. Uh, were you able to be transported by it? Or could you kind of, you know, see the threads? I mean, I kept getting transported to being a 10-year-old watching Disney's Aladdin, oh, which, yeah. <laughs> which draws so, so, so much, so much uh, both visually and sort of in its characterization of, of certain uh, people, not to mention Abu, the character being Abu the monkey. I don't know. There's, yeah. uh, and Jaffer being Jafar. Yeah, yeah. And like, even like sort of the, the eyes, like the stare, the magic stare is very reminiscent of the, the Disney Jafar. Uh, I don't know where, when it became Jafar and not Jaffer, but <laughs> other than that, it's pretty one-to-one. But um, uh, Ahmed's but it, vest is also very much like yes. one Aladdin. I mean, it is, yeah. it is, you know, it is, they're not, we weren't trying to hide the source of inspiration with that, with that one. No, not at all. But this was my, my first time actually with, with this movie. And like, yeah, you certainly, can see the strings of, of some of those effects. But, uh, you know, some of them are, are cool in spite of or even like because of those. I, I, I really enjoyed the flying horse uh, sequence uh, yeah. or really sort of the assembling of the horse leading mm-hmm. up to to the flying was, was very uh, cool. Done. And like, honestly, that spider was a lot scarier than a lot of like gnarly cgi spiders i've been subjected to over the last decade or so of films so you know it definitely still has power to to affect yeah i mean yes you obviously can see the strings a, a lot here but i i like i mean i you know i mean yeah i'm on the record with with uh, uh liking uh, old effects uh even if, if they've been technologically superseded. But, you know, it's kind of like fun seeing how the magic trick is done yeah obviously that's a giant it's a big like 
cast of a foot, not not a giant, a realistic looking giant foot, but it's still really fun to, to watch. And I think some of those effects are are, are just you know I wouldn't change a, a bit about them. Like like I, I love the genie. The genie is is uh is really cool, and and the sense of scale, the way they play with scale uh, when he's climbing the 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 canyon and things like that, it's 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 really ingenious and really effective, and 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 takes me into the world. Yeah, I, I like the movie a, a lot. I had not seen it since I was I don't know twelve or thirteen or something. And, you know, now I'm even more aware of of how influential it was. You know, know, Raiders comes immediately to mind, but but just really a whole school of of adventure films. It is it is a a proto uh, a proto blockbuster in many ways. It was good and bad, too. It's like it's also very much a film. You build around the set pieces, you know, you know and you you kind of wait for to get to the the the, the fireworks factory and all and from time to time, but it's not not you don't have to wait too long. It's it's nicely done that way. Yeah, this is kind of the nineteen forty equivalent of a Jurassic Park movie, isn't it? And yeah, you know, in that Jurassic Park Dominion is a movie that exists much more for the dino scenes than anything else. And here you can just kind of feel like the narrative only really cares about like where where are we going to go next and like what big interesting special effect thing are we going to do? Except I except I did care though. And I, I you know because I, I really think the performances, you know, particularly Conrad Veet and Sabu are really riveting and exciting. You know, uh, it's just, how can you not just be like, you know, and I, and I, and I, and I found the, the, the friendship between Abu and Ahmad to be really winning, you know, I mean, it just, you know, they really kind of have this great connection that, that gets forged in the prison. And I think Ahmad responds so well to Abu's spirit and his confidence and, and, and his just, the sort of the breezy way he goes through life and and uh and i think that, that's it's irresistible to him and it's i think it's it's irresistible to me too as as a viewer to kind of like connect to a character like that and just he's just got one of those faces and in and, and that just what the movies are made for it's just like so he's just such a striking performer he's got all kinds of physical gifts he's got all kinds of comedic gifts and i think that i think that that takes you so far in terms of putting you through the movie, getting you through the movie when it's not, you know, so set piece oriented and it is a very set piece oriented movie, but, it, but, but those stretches in between are filled with a lot of stuff I like too, because of some of the performances. Really? I I thought the performances were kind of the weak part of the film. I mean, I don't think Sabu is a very strong performer in a lot of ways. He's very shouty. Like he physically throws himself into the character in a very realistic way. And I really like the way he's structured and and characterized in a lot of ways. But I saw the seams in this movie way more in the the 1940s style acting and the the kind of feeling of people not necessarily being in the same space during shooting than I did with the the special effects. I mean, I agree with that overall, but I don't necessarily agree with it in terms of Sabu as Abu. And I was so much more charmed by John Justin being charmed by <laughs> Sabu than I was any of the sort of like romantic stuff happening between Ahmad and, and the princess, oh, yeah. which, do- which does feel very much in that sort of heightened of this era style of, of acting, uh, you know, or very swoony, I guess, and it's not really like based the- in any thing resembling actual human emotion <laughs> it's also like the romantic scenes in a marx brothers movie it's kind of like yeah let's just get through this and let's get back to the marx brothers <laughs> yeah. so, but it's also a little bit like a, a fairy tale you know it's it's right. to some degree it's like you know les mis or uh stories like that where it's like here's here's the ingenue couple we know this has to happen we don't want to spend too much time on it so they see each other and they're like, hey, the first attractive person I've ever seen in my life of the opposite sex. <laughs> Let's go for it. It's all good. But I, I appreciate that the film both shorthands it and just kind of makes it a little soppy. Like it's it's kind of adorable. Abu cares about Ahmad's uh, obsession with the princess, not because he believes in the undying true love, not because he thinks they're tyrannous for each other, but because this is in the way of like the all the exciting, fun things he wants to do. So he's like, <laughs> all right, you're obsessed with this lady. Uh, I'll, I, can, I can get you in to see her. No, no big. Then we're going to go hang out with Sinbad, right? Just over and over and over. Like, structurally, I 
maybe had a, a minor problem with the degree to which the their whole story is about the inevitably the kid of color exists to support the white guy in his extremely soppy desires and uh and futures but i cannot hate a 1940s film that's basically about how the indian kid is competent at literally everything he does and his his irrepressibility and his confidence and his skills get them both through life where <laughs> Whereas that handsome white guy just kind of stands around being bland and waiting to be rescued. I, I thought that was pretty fun. It's also it's the Booth movie. I mean, he's the star of it. I mean, yeah. you, know, the, 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 you know, whatever, whatever the prince or the king or whatever. But, you know, it's the Booth. That's true. It is called The Thief of Baghdad, not The Prince of Egypt. I had a couple of I have a couple of notes, a couple of responses. Um, <laughs> one is that, again, I, I have to stick up for Sabu's performance here because I think it's fantastic. And I and I think. You know, a question. I mean, did, did you all not enjoy Sabu giving the business to the genie? That did not entertain you, or because <laughs> uh, I found that stuff to be hilarious. And and uh, he's just like it's it's that kind of like that spirit of his, that sort of sense of humor. That you know, I, I just think he just embodies the whole spirit of the film. Like I, I don't see it working. He's like, it's a, it's just that piece of the movie that if it's cast with someone else, it could seriously damaged the the film i mean i think sabu is a really important part of the movie and then the other thing i will stand up for is i i think this the last scene the last kind of big scene between ahmed and the in the princess where they're both sort of chained up in prison is actually really good and really kind of passionate and kind of weirdly erotic too because they're kind of sort of tied up and you know and the, the stuff they're expressing to each other is very intense you know i, I think that you know for, for a movie that doesn't really want or even need or uh, to spend the time to establish that relationship to fuss over that relationship much it sells you on it at that moment and, I, and also kind of i am kind of a sucker for you know movies bondage that, scenes yeah I, I i do like that well of course but then also i like that I, I i like movies that believe in love at first sight to a degree i mean i like the i don't mind sleeping beauty being n not a film of great psychology because you're just you're just supposed to feel that connection and that connection is made through the cinema. And, uh, and I think that kind of is, is, you know, this, this movie doesn't make that connection as strong as I would like, but it does in that moment, it does finally when, when they're in prison together, I think, I mean, I, I, I felt it, I felt like it felt very urgent and uh, I was kind of surprised by the power of it. And I got a lot of that is in the staging. I, I think the staging in that sequence is really neat. I, I think the way she's, you know, tied up against this dramatic, spiky uh, backdrop, like dark backdrop of a wall. And she's got this like very bright white costume with these very bright blue cords tied around her. It's just it's like a, a movie poster image. And then the way he's chained up uh, is also just like very, very contrasty. Like the, the the space that they're in is very dark and heavy. And then they're both very visually light characters. So I like I like the visual staging of it. I like what they say to each other. I I think there's a a romanticization of like their their tragic death there. That's the best they can do in a scenario where they they can't be together. That's very brave and and feels like maybe the most heroic thing they do in that movie. So yeah, I'm I'm all in with you on that scene. As far as Sabu and the genie, like that's taken pretty verbatim from uh, short stories that that I'm familiar with and I like. And I don't love the execution. Uh, it, it just it's very strident. It's very broad. It's very yelly. I will trade you for that, though. The scene that maybe really sticks with me in terms of Sabu's performance is when the genie just kind of dumps him in the god's temple and leaves him to navigate it on his own. And Sabu is clearly frightened and out of his element. But I'm calling him Sabu instead of uh, his character name. But uh, Abu is unnerved, but he rises to the occasion. And like watching him fearfully navigate this space, find a way to arm himself. And then the whole sequence where he climbs up the spider's web, where he starts singing to himself, like a little reprise of his song from earlier with new verses, and then goes to climb up the spider's web. Like I thought all of that was great. And in part, it's because he's not 
projecting personality loudly at somebody else on screen to convince them of something. He's not, you know, shouting everything he does. It's a much more internal performance where he is kind of trying to buck himself up in a very small, quiet way. And like throughout that sequence, which starts off like very internal and musical in a fun way. I really liked it whenever this movie veered into uh, being a musical, although those segments are few and far between. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it becomes a, a big physical action sequence that he's really suited for on a pretty incredible set. So like that, yes. that whole sequence, I think, is great. It is. I, I, mean, and you could, I mean, I guess you could say, I mean, he certainly would be well suited to just a straight up silent film just because he's got that physicality to him. He's got mm -hmm. that kind of outward expressiveness and, and, and he has so much strength, you know, and, and kind of, you know, he looks so cool in the light. He's just like so magnetic. And like, as for the, the shoutiness, I mean, I guess I don't disagree with that description, but I also just kind of like consider it part and parcel of this kind of movie from this era in in Hollywood. I guess it wasn't a Hollywood film, but in this era of, of, of movie making, like especially a, a quote unquote child actor, even though Sabu was like 15 or 16 at this point, but mm -hmm. he is, you know, playing a character who, who is a, a child. And I think this is like in a lot of ways a a children's movie or it's a it's a family movie at, at any rate but i think like as far as you know what we were talking about with the love story and kind of how how thin it is it's notable that the final beat of this movie is not Ahmed and the princess, you know, living happily ever after. <laughs> it's Abu jumping out of his car being like, nope, I don't want any of what you guys got going on here. I'm going back to having fun and adventure and living my life the way that I love it. And it's a very like, I think it's a very kid friendly ending, not like, ooh, gross, you know, kissing. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so I guess I just sort of process that character as being very childlike, even though the actor is not necessarily a child, just the way that it's written and the way the film is sort of constructed around him, I think encourages that reading. Yeah, the sequence before the big rescue sequence, where he finds himself in the land of fantasy, and they basically say, you've come here as a, an innocent child and your heart is pure and therefore you get to be king. Like that also is a very uh, child mm -hmm. fantasy that's a lot of fun. Like here's your magic awesome stuff, which you yeah. get for being a kid. Now there's only one rule. <laughs> you that. shouldn't break no. it. Wink, 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 wink. <laughs> uh, definitely don't jump on that thing over there and like go off to have fabulous adventures. Yeah. And then of course that's exactly what they wanted to do. I'm not, now I'm going to tell you what you need to say for the for this incredible <laughs> thing to go. <laughs> Which you definitely I really, shouldn't you should do. Not say it. I, I think it's delightful that the the former king of that place, who I guess the implication is that he also was a, a small, innocent child and became king and then has lived out his days there. And it seems like he's also ready to go on to adventures or he's he's very excited to see this kid who is very clearly going to take the carpet and go have adventures like the whole time he's kind of peeking through the curtains like all right here he goes breaking the rule i told mm -hmm. him to uh to do because it wouldn't be fun if i told him he could have the carpet yeah uh, like the the psychology of that is fun I, but I, one of my favorite things in the movie, I think, is that monologue that Ahmad gives at the end uh, that you can just see Abu piecing out on where he's just like, after he goes to school for an inordinately long time and studies a whole bunch of math and other really boring subjects that you, the audience, don't care about, he's going to work really hard for a long time indoors while wearing the uncomfortable collar he's trying to pull off right now. And it's just like, it's not just foreshadowing it, it's comedy you know it's it's mm -hmm. outsized comedy in a way that i just found really enjoyable there's one other notable performance but we'll get to that after this break okay we're back and and uh the, the performer the the major performance here that we haven't talked about really at all yet is uh conrad Veet's performance as Jaffer, and this is this is a bad guy. This is a bad guy. Like you know, Aladdin had its Jafar, but I I don't know if I don't know if even Jafar the Jafar of the Disney Aladdin was quite it was as diabolical as this as this one. This 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 is a bad dude. What did you think of this performance in this character? He was 
bad, but you also you can feel for him a little bit, right? I mean, this is someone who is so alienated from everyone else. I mean, he is such a magnetic performance. It's not just, you know, it's not a simplistic character, even though given the choice, he always does the bad thing. I don't know. Uh <laughs> I, I he feels pretty uh, unequivocally just yeah. bad to yeah, me. I'm not, I I, you know, I very hissworthy. And I guess what's interesting about him to me, uh, and this is something that uh, transferred over to the Disney version of the character, is that he's a he's a sorcerer. You know, he has a huge amount of magical power, and we don't really have a lot of context for why he has it or how he obtained it and why the people he's using it on don't have it. I, I guess the implication is that he like learned and obtained it over years of study that maybe is what uh, Abu was <laughs> being pointed toward. Uh, but it's never really like clarified unless I, I missed something. So he does kind of like stick out from the other characters in having this, you know, kind of massive amount of power, I, I guess, other than the genie. And the fact that he wields it only for bad, I think just like amplifies his his evilness. And as far as the performance goes, like I think Conrad Veet does a very good job getting that across across not just the evilness, but sort of the the power, the internal power, the the idea that he has something inside of him that allows him to manipulate people just like the hypnosis that he does on the princess you know like it again in disney's aladdin it is translated specifically as like you know the whirling hypnosis eyes you know with the spirals in it <laughs> uh-huh. but here it's just like that's what conrad v does with his face and it comes across as him performing sorcery and that's impressive yeah, well, the key light plays a part to there too. You, sure, you get sure, that really yeah. <laughs> nice kind of like uh, uh, close up, and you get that nice light across the eyes. And again, I mean, I love it. I mean, just anything you can do with a, with a movie camera that, that, that it affects that are like bring across things that don't have to be said is a, a big plus. But I, I do, um, I, I, I'm kind of with you. I, I don't necessarily see a pitiable side of him. It, but what's interesting to me about him is, I, I, is that power. The accumulation of power is almost like the sole motivator because because you you would think for example his interest in the the princess would have would be about desire but I, I don't think it's that I, I really don't even even given given you know this is, uh, she's a young beauty of course uh, I I don't really see any kind of like spark of attraction there it's just about like okay this is territory i'm going to continue to claim i'm just going to mm-hmm. build up all of this power for what i don't know it's it's just it's just like this 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 like mirthless accumulation of power that's kind of what he's all about and and i like that i like that the film plays it that broadly and it, it plays everything pretty broadly and i think purposefully so good and evil i think is really heightened in this in this uh film and uh i don't mind it i think it fits fits the genre quite well I guess for me, what sets him apart from Jafar and Aladdin is that the Jafar is essentially a monster. You know, just you know, he's caricatured to the point where he is kind of just monstrous. And to see Veet as as a as a human being who's like so removed from anything that makes everyone else human, I, I don't know. It has a different effect for me. I'm there with Keith. I mean, like, I don't, I don't think that he's a like a secret redeemable good guy or anything like that. But I, I do think that there's a humanity to him, like an aspect of him that isn't just cartoonish. That's interesting. As far as why he has magic when nobody else does, I think, I think that that's just a case of coding. Like, I think that there's a lot of coding that goes into the sorcerer in a story where nobody else is a sorcerer except, you know, inhuman creatures like the djinn. I think it tends to connote like he's probably a scholar. Um, He probably knows a lot more than all of the people around him who mostly seem to be kind of dim bulbs anyway, sometimes in, in innocent, like good ways and sometimes in abdication of responsibility ways like the Sultan of Basra. 
But I think there's also often an implication that, you know, he has powers that humans are not meant to have, that he's like, therefore, in league with the devil or, you know, some other malign supernatural force. I I think that's all probably kind of understood in a story like this is you have access to things that don't belong to humanity because you yourself are kind of outside of humanity a little bit. Right. And I, and I think that's where you can read more depth into his character, maybe not necessarily humanity, but like there, there is a story there, you know, like the fact that he is so separate from everyone else in this movie, it does make you wonder how he got there. You know, I don't want a Jaffer prequel or anything, (laughs) but although having said that, like, there's probably a Jafar prequel for Aladdin, right? Oh. <laughs> uh, one, Jafar. Of, one of the I just that, that idea that uh, you, somebody should send your checks, cut your check for uh, that <laughs> idea. You know what they uh, have instead? Yeah, I, like, I reject it. I don't want Disney Plus it. series <laughs> Jafar. You misunderstood. I regret putting that out into the universe. It'd be like Wicked, right? He'll be like, he'll be, he'll be like, it was everybody else who yeah. was bad, but Jafar. No, it'll be like Maleficent. They already did it with Maleficent, oh, yeah, which again is kind of the same type of figure. Yeah, you know, right. like you the, say the, nobody the, liked Maleficent, but it it made a zillion dollars yeah. and more or less like launched the like Alice in Wonderland was the theoretical launch of the Disney live action remake, <laughs> but Maleficent was really the the one that sealed it. Yeah. But in in that same vein, though, like I, I'm not a fan at all of the uh, I think it's 2019 live-action Aladdin. But one of the things that it did that I thought was interesting was give Jafar a little more backstory and a little more motivation. Not like full Maleficent, but just like enough to make him not that cartoon character. Like he at least claims that he comes from poverty in the same way Aladdin did and had to kind of like pull himself up. And it's it's clear that like learning nefarious magical powers was part of that for him, like tapping into this thing that maybe required him to give up some of his soul, but like it gave him an edge and and a way to gain power in a, a way that you know, people don't in systems like this that are very hierarchical and don't have a whole lot of mobility in them. So I wanted to um, shift a little bit. We've talked a little bit about, about the effects, but they're a big part of this movie. So maybe we should dig in a little bit more. Um, were there, uh, did the effects work for you overall? And were there any particular effects that, that wowed you, especially considering when this film was made? I feel like we talked about that a bit in terms of like the the spider and and the horse. I I like the the the, the sequence Genevieve called out where they assemble the horse and it comes to life is very Wizard of Oz. Like more mm-hmm. than anything in the film that was reminiscent of uh, Wizard of Oz for me. But honestly, the seams around things like the flying horse uh, for me are so obvious that they're kind of distracting. What I found more impressive in this film was the the pageantry, you know, the the mm-hmm. giant, brightly colored sailing ships, that ridiculous spider web that uh, that I called out that Cebu has to climb up. Um, the setting itself of the the temple with the goddess with the all seeing eye and her her forehead, like obviously they do a lot of stuff playing with scale, but. I thought the set piece where the beautiful princess is coming through and it's death to look on her. So everybody has to clear out of the marketplace in a panic. And then these like ferocious riders come through and just like shoot <laughs> arrows at any any <laughs> part of any person they could see. And then eventually the princess comes through with her retinue. Like that whole thing is it's a just filmmaking on a very large scale and uh i i found that all really a lot more impressive than like the rear projection stuff or the you know the the genie and and the little person running around uh at his feet kind of stuff yes you can see the seams in the horse and that whole sequence with the the toys the the sultan of of basra's toys um you know it's, it's just sort of a, a a symphony of the, the cutting edge effects of of the day i'll i'll kind of put together in uh, the guise of these these toys that, that he likes which we haven't really talked about the sultan or, or that performance but that is another one that is just like lifted directly uh into the the disney aladdin characterization uh-huh. of of jasmine's father right Honestly, down to this the, movie the mustaches made that character made so much more sense for me than it yeah. did in in aladdin itself 
yeah, just sort of this this child like uh, dummy. But uh, but he's he's a little more sinister here. Like there is sort of this sense that he has, as I think Scott said, like abdicated his his responsibilities in favor of this you know these flights of fancy, and that is is damaging and not you know cute and quirky. So and he he does uh, receive a pretty uh, grisly death. Oh, that's <laughs> a uh, that's a great scene too mm-hmm. with the six arm mm-hmm. lady, and then just the yeah. planting of the knife and everything. I just thought that was it's kind of almost a little scary too the way it, the way it unfolds um, yeah. and you don't necessarily uh, have to sympathize him with him too much because he just talked about getting rid of his 365 wives so he could you know make sweet love to a robot instead yeah. <laughs> you know he one of the things that makes him sinister is like i don't it's been a while since i've seen the disney aladdin but i don't remember the sultan there talking much about his subjects and how disappointing they are and uh you know how occasionally he has to like lop off their heads or whatever like he the sultan here isn't just obsessed with toys like he comes right out and says that he enjoys his mechanical toys so much more than the people that he's supposed to be ruling like he he makes it very clear that he's abdicated and that he has nothing but you know, contempt and uh, dismissal for the the people that he's supposed to be looking out for. So, like, even though yes, you can you know see the seams around the effects in those toys. Like, I really enjoyed that sequence because it's like kind of an excuse for creativity. You could kind of see like, uh, you know, the filmmaker is like, what what can we design here that will allow us to make this toy feel magical practically? I enjoy kind of piecing together how those things work visually, even if I can see the seams, like the seams are part of the enjoyment because they allow you to kind of see how it works. But also, you know, going back to what we were talking about, which is like the scale of everything, like the early scene of Abu like running through the the streets, you know, before he's he's caught and uh, <laughs> uh, sort of the the one jump ahead of the breadline sequence, <laughs> if, if if you will. But you know, just the levels and the depth of those sets. I'm assuming they're sets, and also the colors of them. Like there's a sort of like pastel quality to a, a lot of the the sets here that is not what I immediately associate with this milieu of, of filmmaking you know I feel like it, you know uh, film set in this time or this sort of version of this era tend to you know go to a much deeper saturated colors so it was interesting kind of seeing it translated in a, a different palette than uh, than I was expecting to see also the garden the garden was very pretty and the sort of it's not original but the the prince and princess sort of meeting via a reflection in a pond is just always kind of a, a nice way to you know, find true love. <laughs> that was. Cool. I do yeah. like their little little garden banter. Like his, yeah. he takes up the pretense of being a gin pretty readily when it gets mm-hmm. him what he wants. But he he drops it pretty quickly, and they do a little romantic pattern banner that's kind of the 1940s equivalent of uh, their, that's our song. You know, she she hears it later, and she thinks of him when she might have otherwise uh, forgotten him. It's a, a nice little callback and a, a nice little piece of writing. Yeah, it's uh, I, and effects wise too. I, I think the the genie and uh, uh, every effect with that genie, I think is well, except maybe maybe the genie flying in certain sequences. Yeah, I was going to say as, that it's not a quite that's, stiff. That's, that, I think, I think <laughs> he, he looks like an old like Kenner like rubber doll figure yeah, uh, yeah. on a string, yeah, just kind I'd of be like, like being like, dragged. I love that though. It's so charming. I mean, it's charming, you know, but it is I, kind of what Genevieve is saying. Even when it doesn't work, it works. Yeah. But, I will but, say, but a lot regarding, of stuff just works, though. Some of it just actually just straight up works <laughs> with the genie. The I genie like that stuff. <laughs> and, and Sabu and Ahmed to some degree. Uh, this movie has a lot of male skin in it. Like, yeah. way more than I'm used to seeing in uh, uh, movies of the time. It's hot out and, there. <laughs> hot and out in there. here, am I right? No. <laughs> uh, so, uh, sun's out, uh, guns out. 
<laughs> I just I had I had a, a small just bit of enjoyment. Scott, you were thinking about what it was like to be a a ten year old kid in the theater seeing this for the first time. Yeah. I was thinking about what it was like to be a, a forty year old housewife watching this movie and uh, you know kind of fanning yourself like well, I've never seen thighs like that before. It's got something for everybody. I, I, don't, I don't I can't imagine too many people were all that upset about the the buxom princess being uh, being tied up in the uh, weird spiky prison place. Um, but uh, that's entertainment. What? Speaking of entertainment, I'm, I'm the only person that's brought up the musical sequences. As I say, there are not a lot of them, but there are at least four or five of them. What did, what did other people make of those? I'm s- honestly struggling to remember them beyond Abu's song. There's the song that the princess's handmaiden sings to her that's kind of the... Well, we're women. We got to sit here and wait for uh, the prince to come along and <laughs> say those those magic words. Uh, it's song that's you know it's how you entertain a princess that you're dragging back and forth uh, on a swing. But the movie opens with a song about like men going off to sea and how clean and pure and wonderful oh, the right. sea is over the shots of those just like gorgeous Technicolor ships, and then uh, Abu's got his song and then the reprise of his song. Yeah. Yeah, I do like if you, if you watch the uh, or listen to the commentary uh, on this between uh, Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola, which they they're both on it. They record it separately, but Scorsese talks about how Coppola enjoys singing that uh, "Sailors Going to Sea" song, just kind of uh, <laughs> on 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 a fairly regular basis, and I, I think that kind of kind of charming. Yeah, that commentary track, I haven't had a chance to dig into it, but if you subscribe to the Criterion channel uh, for streaming, it's one of the features on there. I actually watched the movie on the Criterion channel's website, and I found that first and was just like, this is this is real. It's a full feature length Scorsese Coppola talking about this movie. That's amazing. Yeah. Scorsese was so good at commentaries but when he when he did them. Um I, I'm kinda anxious. I, I had forgotten that the the two of them had done the commentary for this one, so I kinda wanna go back and see it. I'm sure I mean I'm sure this movie hit them at a great time because <laughs> it would have been it would have been kind of I guess doing what some rep screenings here and there and uh when they were growing up they probably probably saw it at that impressionable age where it kind of blew their minds. And Scorsese befriended Powell, so like he has a lot of stories about actually talking to him. And uh, elsewhere, and like the bonus features on the other commentary, which I think Bruce Eder does, which is which is really good. He talks about how really there's not a lot of history about this film's production because all it's lost and like all we kind of have is like Powell talking about it, but there's whole scenes that nobody knows who directed, whether or not Ludwig Berger, who was like the first director who's, who's credited, like whether any of his scenes ended up in the film at all. No one, no one knows. It's, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of fascinating how something this, you know, this film, this, you know, big and seen by so many can have so many mysteries around, uh, around how it was made. Yeah, it's just the power of the producer. I mean, Alexander Corder really kind of brought everything together. And, you know, I mean, the production was broken up. It just doesn't feel that way. It feels like a very coherent Fijian vision. Um, well, to, to bring it back to what what Tasha asked about, because we didn't really ta- answer uh, about the songs, but I, yeah. and I, like, honestly, like, I did not have a strong reaction to them, them clearly. But I am curious in the context of, of what we're talking about, like, was this envisioned as a musical or, or are those like artifacts of one director or another? Like what, what do we know anything about why these sporadic song elements are there? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I actually was reminded I me, mean, Keith brought up the, the Marx Brothers thing earlier, but that was kind of an element of Marx Brothers movies when they moved from Paramount to MGM to make films like uh, Night at the Opera and the Day, Day of the Race is that, is that you would have you know, some, you know, musical numbers, you know, between lovers that you don't care about, et cetera. It just was just an element that was kind of part of the big production language suit. of film yeah. at the time. Total yeah. entertainment package. Well, it's also a kind of a fantasy film thing. I mean, Corda talked about how one reason he made this film is like the only that after the silent era, there was a dearth of fantasy films that weren't Disney. And, you know, of course, Disney films, you know, music music is part of those, too, even if we don't think of them as musicals. I think it's kind of the same thing. The same with The Wizard of Oz, which came out a year before this, is probably one of the closest points of comparison. It's like, again, not a musical per se, but certainly takes it, you will pause and give you some music. 
You know, you you, you know, you, you 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 paid for a movie ticket. You should you should yeah. get a whole evening's entertainment out of the movie you're watching, yeah. right? Putting putting the mellow in melodrama. Yeah. So the criterion essay for the film, Andrew Moore makes a connection between the thief of Baghdad and sort of the colonialist point of view. And you can see how the film might raise that issue of how the West understands the East. I mean, there 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 are notes of barbarism on one end and exoticism on the other. How do you see all that sort of manifesting itself here? And did, did any of it uh, make you kind of uncomfortable? I mean, one of the things that did make me uncomfortable is it, we we haven't really talked about the fact that a, a great deal of the movie is somebody telling a story, which is somebody something we'll get into, I think, in, in comparison with 3,000 Years of Longing. But the our introduction to the man who tells that story is him begging for coins in the street, and he's just repeating the phrase over and over, alms for Allah's sake. I've I've never heard it pronounced Allah before, and it it just it every single time it it felt grating and strange, like something that you would get from somebody who has never studied Islam in any way, doesn't know anything about the belief, but understands vaguely that the kind of foreigners that you're making a film about in this exotic setting find this this god Allah very important. And it just is such a strange melding, I think, of trying to be respectful to a culture that has certain elements of religion like threaded through it and just not knowing the, the most basic thing about it. I found it very strange and I, I kind of flinched a little every time somebody mentioned Allah, which happens a lot during this movie. I mean, it is the definition of Orientalism in many ways. It is the the exotic East and it conflates the Middle East with South Asia, with East Asia, mm-hmm. in terms of of what what you see, and 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 casting like like Sabu is Indian, and right? <laughs> yes. you know, there is just sort of a a conflating of that area of the world, but that is you know as far as you know representation on screen it, with this era of film that's just something you kind of it's part of the package I mean, uh, like yeah. uncomfortable with the casting you know like it's just there's you have to just accept it to be able to like take in films from this era but you can still interrogate it yeah I mean, now. it's yeah. really almost not like uh, yeah but i don't want to necessarily say you know come at it from you know, at 80, 82 years later and say, this is abhorrent, but it is interesting just to, to look back and see how the film reflects a colonialist point of view or reflects the sort of attitudes that Western filmmakers might have towards the East. And it, and it can go either way, as I say, I mean, it, um, it is, you know, the East could be, become this place of just of broad fantasy that, that, you know, that, that you know, Orient, Orientalism, as you say, and, and then there are other times of the film where, where characters from uh, that region of the globe are seen as just are flattened their humanity is flattened in other in in other ways too and they're and they're kind of uh faceless and vicious as well particularly particularly kind of the guards i suppose towards the end of the towards the end of the movie kind of struck me that way too but um but it's interesting to kind of look to look at it as part of the movie and it's and uh it, it's something that that uh is worth, I think, thinking about. All that being said, I, I don't know to what degree this was intended uh, as being coded or read as being coded at the time, but it's also a film that is, you know, is bookended by and it features throughout the idea of, of an unjust government that needs to be overthrown, and Sabu's the one who overthrows it. I mean, I, I, oh, yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't know if there's anything to be read about, into that or not, but it is there. Yeah, I was going to bring that up as as far as the colonialist viewpoint, like you could, if you want, take to task the the degree to which like the common people are kind of superstitious and ignorant, like they're easily led, they're easily permitted to believe the lies that Jaffer spreads. 
we don't really the movie never really interrogates why they all believe Ahmad is a a tyrant, like an evil tyrant. I think you're left to kind of like read between the lines and think that Jaffer's been ruling in his name and probably doing terrible things. I think you have to understand or at least expect that he's ignorant of what's being done in his name or you can't take him as a hero. Like it comes as a shock and a surprise to him to find out that he he's considered a tyrant who men desperately want to see overthrown. But we never actually find out why that is, not just in terms of whether Jafar is doing things in his name, but like we never hear he's, you know, taxing us un- unfairly or like we see one person executed for thinking. And I guess the the implication there is that, that that's the kind of tyranny that we're facing. But yeah. in terms of you know, the the colonialist narrative, like even that is kind of placed within a cultural context that says to me that the writers did actually read the Arabian Nights, not just because of the things they steal from it in terms of like entire like specific plot lines pulled out, but also just in terms of like how people talk to each other. You know, the the weird little expressions that come up from time to time, like uh, Abu calling the the king of the land of fantasy, like father of a beard, uh, is just a very Arabian Nights kind of thing. And that sequence with the men all sitting in the marketplace, like listening to the storyteller, who is also kind of an imam, like like leading them in a, a religious understanding of sorts of like the, the prophecy and how things are going to fall out in the future, like sort of fomenting revolution and preaching religion at the same time. Like that, that all strikes me as a lot more culturally cogent than most of the movies that you would have seen at the time. And some other parts of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I think this will be a topic that we can revisit when we bring in 3,000 years of longing. Uh, But for now, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion and anything else in the world of film. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share any responses with us and other listeners. Or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. We'll be back in a minute with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback. We got a couple of good letters from Jason and Austin, including this one on Grizzly Man, that question our take on a scene that we spent a lot of time unpacking in the episode. Genevieve, do you want to read an excerpt for us? Sure. Jason writes, My lone critique of your grizzly man take was how hard you came down on the scene where Herzog listens to the recording of the slaying of Timothy by the bear. It's certainly indulgent on Herzog's part, but I found the scene central to the story. As you pointed out excellently, Timothy saw himself as a mythological character. The idea of the lost tape, which must be destroyed or hidden, carries on that mythology beyond death. It creates the Holy Grail, the secret treasure, the Excalibur of Timothy's saga, the cursed thing which is too powerful and must be destroyed. But at the same time, it's very personal. It is all that to the lover because it would destroy her to hear the demise of the man that she loved. And she knows it might well have been her who got lured into his web and killed beside him. It's Timothy's own mythologizing of himself as a modern samurai warrior, etc., which lured Herzog into his story, and Herzog milked his mythology for everything it was worth. That's what makes this film transcend, in my opinion, and the scene with the recording is central to those ideas. Okay, so as the person who was the primary and possibly only objector to that sequence, <laughs> uh, I, the, the thing here is that in, in describing what Jason feels is great about it, I feel Jason very accurately describes what I didn't like about it. The phrase milked his mythology for everything it was worth really kind of sums it up. And everything he's saying is, I think, accurate to what what Herzog ends up turning this tape into. I, I think that this is a very lyrical and poetic description of it. But again, we're talking about a man's life. We're talking about milking the mythology of a, a real life catastrophe where a a person died for all it's worth and turning it into this like artistic fantasy fairy tale artifact. Like all of the language here is kind of talking about something out of a fable or, you know, out of a, an epic fantasy like Lord of the Rings. And I object to that artifact creating as a central part of 
eulogizing and and mourning a a real life human being and trying to turn him mythic. The fact that he himself was trying to turn himself mythic maybe ends up like creating a a nice assonance there. But in the end, it to me, it's just it's kind of Herzog valuing the myth that he's creating over like the reality of the situation in a way that I find a little exploitative. Um. Well, I don't agree. Um, uh, uh, so, uh, <laughs> well, and and I mean, I would, I would argue, and I mean, this is like slippery territory to to get into, but like, you know, Jason kind of opens it up by saying that you know Timothy Treadwell himself, you know, kind of turned himself into a mythological character. Like, doesn't it kind of seem like that's how he would want the scene to play out? Like, based on what we see of how he presents on camera and how he tells his own story, like. Doesn't it kind of seem like Timothy Treadwell would take a certain pleasure in his final moments being no. turned so mythological? No, because he did not want to get eaten by a bear. He <laughs> he didn't want he didn't wouldn't well, want that bear sure. shot. It's like it's established and that he like, didn't want the bear killed. <laughs> that he didn't want to vilify bears. That he didn't want people to be afraid of bears. And also, all of his self mythologizing was about how he had cracked the code by becoming a mystical nature warrior who was the only person who understood the bears. Like I don't think that he would have wanted the tape played or you know forced his his old love to hear it or anything like that but i don't think that he would have wanted the creation of this uh like mythological artifact of his death you know by the creatures he thought he understood and controlled and that he wanted to make sure like nobody nobody feared or mishandled or misused i don't know i mean i, I think it, know. i think it's a it's a great bit of staging i mean Her- herzog knows how to make how to make movies. <laughs> I mean, this was like a, this is a, and I think it's, a, I think it's a, it's a, him, him telling her that she must not listen to this tape. I mean, it's, I mean, is it the most famous moment from the movie? <laughs> I, I think he's, his instincts are, are good. And I think, I think it releases this dramatic moment where uh, that, that is also kind of a, a human moment where he's, he's, you know, protecting her from this, uh, you know, truly, horrific recording i i I don't know i i like it and i like the i like also um jason's ideas here the 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 thing (laughs) calling it the excalibur of timothy saga this tape i thought was really Hmm. uh, clever and uh uh so uh so i like that so it's both mythological and human at the same time we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at 3,000 Years of Longing, George Miller's attempt to mine the same fantasies for a more grown-up audience. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, you can take a sniff from the blue rose of forgetfulness and listen to this episode again. Again.